We want to get into the Word this morning, so if you'll turn to the book of Acts, we're going to be studying a, a pretty remarkable story about the disciples. And just giving a little background, Peter and John had healed a man who had been born lame 40 years, 40 plus years, and uh, had been in the temple and healed this man, and it qu caused quite a stir. And they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and as a result, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, got pretty bent out of shape, had these guys arrested, held overnight, and we know from our study two weeks ago that, uh, that based on the trial and on the timing of things, it was pretty evident that the Sanhedrin intended to put these two men to death. And uh, today we're going to see their deliverance, and so that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse um, 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word this morning. God, it is a great honor and a great privilege to gather in your name and, Lord, to worship you, God, to be transformed by you, and, Father, to allow your word to touch our hearts and to move us and to instruct us and to guide us. And so this morning, we, we want to say thank you in advance that you're working. Thank you, Jesus, that even as... We're here meeting. You're interceding for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you as well, right now, are interceding for us before the Father. I know the prayers you have for us are for our benefit, for the benefit of your kingdom, that we might become the men and women that you've called us to be. Make it so today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I find this story amazing for several reasons. Not the least of which is that these men who are praying for boldness and courage are the same men that just two months earlier had run and fled and denied the name of Jesus Christ. Just two months. There's a passage in scripture that says in Proverbs, um, Proverbs 28.1 that the wicked man flees though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So we've got these guys that just a couple of months earlier were timid and fearful, and now they're bold as lions. They told the Sanhedrin, you decide, is it better for us to obey God or obey you? But as far as we're concerned, we must obey God. These men were so courageous that the Sanhedrin recognized that they'd been with Jesus. That's a pretty amazing thing when people around you recognize under pressure that you belong to the Lord. The question is, what made the difference? Well, I think there are three things at least, probably others. But the first thing is that they were absolutely secure in their relationship with the Father. They knew that they would be in eternity regardless of what happened. They couldn't lose, in other words. 
And so they didn't have to hold on to anything. The second reason I believe that the disciples were so bold is that uh, they had the example and modeling of Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus' modeling of not being a person who was worried about self-preservation, but about the kingdom of God and about your salvation and mine, he went to the cross, the disciples were able to release that whole attitude that that holds so many people back, and it's an attitude of self-preservation. And by the way, that's what worried the Sanhedrin. That's what caused them to be jealous. That's what caused them to be so angry and want to kill Jesus and kill his disciples is because they were concerned that their little gig, their thing that they had going on in the temple was going to be damaged, was going to be taken from them. And self-preservation motivated and prompted them to do ungodly, wicked things. We talked about this two weeks ago, that God has called us not to be people of self-preservation who are kind of guarding and protecting and being careful and cautious in our walk with God. But he wants us to be bold and courageous. And because of Jesus' example, the disciples followed his lead. But the third thing, and the most obvious one that we know brought about the dramatic change was the empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit who enabled them to go from men of timidity to men of courage, men who were bold like lions. And I would suggest to you that the church could, could use more men and women like that. Men and women that don't care about what people think, men and women who are not timid, men and women who are not concerned about self-preservation or getting along or being liked, but men and women who are so assured of their eternity and so determined by God's grace to follow the leading of Christ and so filled with the Holy Spirit that they're willing to follow the Lord no matter what the cost. And that's the lifestyle of these disciples. And as I thought about this, I thought it really comes down to this choice and I find myself having to make this choice every single day. Will I be cold or bold? That's really what it comes down to. That's what this passage is about. Will I be cold for Christ, timid, self-preserving, cautious, fearful, or will I be bold? You know, in Revelation chapter three, Jesus is talking to the church and he, and he uses different terminology, but he says, hot or cold, which will you be? I'd rather you one or the other, but I don't want you lukewarm. And what I found in my own life, and maybe you have a different experience, but my experience is this, if I'm not bold and hot, I'm getting cold. Because when I'm bold, I get hotter. But when I start to back off and scale down and step down, I find my heart becomes lukewarm and then lukewarm leads to cold. I just never get cold and get excited about Christ. Being lukewarm has never made me excited about walking with God. But it's when I step out, it's when I'm courageous, it's when God gives me strength and when I do the uncomfortable things and the things that are not necessarily popular, when I'm willing to step out and preach the gospel or share the Lord with somebody that, that the Lord tells me, go, I want you to go share with that person and I don't even know who they are. When I do those kinds of things and, and then I see God answer in big ways and I, and I find myself flowing with the work of the Holy Spirit, it, it really invigorates me and gives me greater boldness for God. And that's the choice that we have to face. And I wish it was a one-time thing. I wish I could just say, bold and now I'm done and I'm gonna be bold the rest of my life. But it seems that I have to get up every single day and make that decision, cold or bold. I don't know any Christian who loves the Lord that wants to be anything but bold. And so I'm praying that today that God would stir up your hearts. So many of you are bold already. You're sharing the Lord with people. You're witnessing. You're living courageously in your life. You're men and women of integrity. You're following after Christ. And I want to encourage you. And I want to inspire all of us to walk in boldness with Christ as these early disciples and church believers did. We find the story picks up in verse 23 where the disciples, after having stood boldly before the Sanhedrin, are released miraculously. Now remember, these guys were certain they were going to die. That was where this meeting was headed. That was the purpose for the meeting, was to try them and to put them to death. But the Sanhedrin released them and Peter and John went back to the believers and they immediately gave a report. Kind of like what happened last week with the Mississippi missions team. And they came in all three services, they gave a report of what God did on that trip. And we've had three teams that have gone out so far. And every time they come back, it's like it's really exciting to hear how God moved in and through 
their lives. And so these disciples, they go back, Peter and John, and they report the miracle that they're still alive. And so the people's response is that they raise their voices in prayer to God. And the, uh, the verb form of raise their voices is uh, homothumadon, which means together corporately with one heart, they raised their voice to God. And what did they say? They said, oh, sovereign Lord. That may not seem like much because we know those words, but the, the Greek word is despotas, where we get our English word despot from. It means someone with absolute power, dominion, and authority. Now, this is important, this particular word, because it has so much to do with the faith and the confidence of these disciples. Because the very first thing that they pray is they acknowledge the sovereign rule of God Almighty in their life. And they identify him in the text as the creator of heaven and earth. That's a great way to start a prayer, by the way. It's the way that Jeremiah started a prayer in Jeremiah 32, 17, when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, threatened him with death and imprisonment because he was prophesying, according to the will of God, that Babylon was going to overtake Judah because of Judah's wickedness. But Zedekiah didn't want to hear it. He wasn't repentant. And so he threw Jeremiah in prison. And in Jeremiah 32, 17, we have the prayer of Jeremiah to God. And this is what he said. It's so similar to this text. Sovereign Lord, he begins, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and that's outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And in essence, that's how the disciples are starting out here. This early church is they're starting out with this recognition that God is the despotas, the great, almighty, absolute ruler and king of the universe. They're acknowledging his ability to overcome anything. And by the way, this is a great way for us to pray when we're in trouble. Why? Well, because the, the most important thing that we can do when we pray is recognize that God is sovereign, that God is all-powerful. And that changes the way the rest of the prayer is going to go, I guarantee it. If we recognize that, that nothing is outside of the control of God, the trouble that you're facing the difficulties that you've had, the, the tragedies that have entered your life, all of these things, nothing is outside of the power of God. And when you begin a prayer like that, all of a sudden your confidence and your faith grows. And like Jeremiah, you say, wow, hey, he made everything. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. They also recognized in verse 25 through 28 the fact that they were a part of prophetic fulfillment, that there was something happening in their lives as a result of this arrest and the birth of the church that was the fulfillment of prophecies that had been given hundreds of years earlier about the church. One of those prophecies is found in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and it's recorded for us in the text. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And this was a prophecy that was given by King David. And yet right now, at this time of writing, John and Peter are recognizing, wow, we're living it. We're in the middle of it right now. This is exactly what David would say about the anointed one, what God would say through David about the Messiah. And so they find that they are living the scriptures. The other thing I find interesting is that when these disciples are in trouble, not only do they first acknowledge the power of God, the sovereignty of God, but they also go to the scriptures for answers. You know, a couple of nights ago, I had a kind of a sleepless night and I uh, woke up at like 2 or 2.30 and I just couldn't get back to sleep and my mind was kind of turning and, and, uh, and a thought that I hadn't had in years entered my mind about this, uh, this wound and a friendship that I'd had. And... Um, you know, I began to kind of think about it and then I began to pray about it and I tried to, to bless the person and pray. I was doing all the things that I know to do when I'm struggling over something that's happened in the past that's not reconciled. Do you ever have those things that kind of creep up and you wake up and then they're rolling and you can't get them to stop? So I was doing what I knew to do as I was worshiping God in my, in my bed and I was praying and I was asking God to, to bless the person and that God would give me a heart uh, that would be like it talks about in the, on the Sermon on the Mount is that I want to measure this person with a measure that I want to be measured by. And I always want to be measured by grace. So I was praying grace on that individual, you know, but I was still struggling. And God reminded me of scripture 
And so I broke my Bible out and I began to read verses that years earlier had helped me in that very situation. And lo and behold, as I went to the word of God, I was freed. And all of a sudden it was like, thank you, Jesus, because he gave me his perspective. And that's what's happening with the disciples here is that they are getting God's perspective on their problem. And it changes their entire prayer that's about to happen because their prayer is unnatural. It's just not right from a human perspective what they're going to pray. And the reason they're able to pray it is because they got God's perspective by recognizing who he is and then going to the word of God to find out what his heart is in this situation. And I can't in commend you enough and exhort you enough that when you have problems, and everybody's got them, is that you recognize the despotas, the sovereign Lord, that nothing is too difficult for him. And secondly, that you go to the Bible to find out how to respond. And that's what these disciples do. And they recognized the sovereign plan of God, the predetermined or predestinated plan of God. They've already preached this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. They said that Jesus Christ was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Now, this is the, the amazing comfort and the amazing joy of the believer is that everything is under the sovereign power of God. I don't understand all of that. I can't comprehend all of it. But what the Bible teaches is that with Pilate, and the others that arrested and were a part of the crucifixion of Jesus, though their plan was evil, though the Sanhedrin's plan was evil, though the Romans' plan was evil, the result was is that God planned, his plan was advanced. So even though they were trying to bring all of the satanic power of, of the enemy was coming against the kingdom of God at that moment, and all of the rebellion of mankind was being evidenced in their crucifixion of Christ, it only served to advance the predetermined purposes of God to bring about salvation for the world. Now that's crazy. That's amazing. And what that tells me as a believer is that I too can trust in the sovereign purposes of God in my life because frankly, I don't understand everything that happens in life. I can't explain everything, the whys and the wherefores of everything that have occurred just in my life or my family's life, much less your lives. But one thing I know and I'm convinced of is that nothing can happen apart from the knowledge of God and apart from the redeeming power of God to bring about his glory. Proverbs 19.21 says that many are the plans in a man's heart, sometimes good and sometimes wicked, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. This is one of the reasons why Christians should never grumble and never complain. Because even the things we go through, even the things that are meant for evil by other people, God, if we submit ourselves to him, can turn for good. That's the whole story of Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery. Years later, after being in jail, after being falsely accused, after being misunderstood, after being slandered, after having the better part of his younger years wasted, so to speak, God raised him up and he became one of the great deliverers of Israel. And he told his brothers, when they finally were reconciled, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And so this is the confidence that we have as believers. Do you, do you realize how important this is? That the problems that you face, you can either grumble about and complain about and become timid and shy and withdrawn spiritually and weak spiritually, or you can, can, you can confront with the power of God, with the great despotas, serving at your, at, at your benefit, working for your glory and for the praise of his name, for the advancement of the kingdom, and that you can trust God, that in time, God is going to bring about his glory through that situation. C.S. Spurgeon, great pastor and writer, said this about the sovereignty of God. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty has overruled their afflictions, and that sovereignty will sanctify their afflictions. That's the hope of the believer. And that's where these disciples are. 
And so they begin with this great confidence in God, the great despotas. They recognize him, who he is. They recognize that scripture, that this is a part of the fulfillment of God's work in their life. And then they recognize the sovereignty of God. That's the only way, that's the only explanation for these crazy prayers that they're gonna pray next. The first one is they said, consider the threats of these, your enemies. Consider the threats. Now, if it had been me, I wouldn't have said consider their threats. I would have said smoke them. I would have said call fire down on these guys. Drive them out. Let the temple fall on them as they're in there worshiping because they're hypocrites, you know? That might have been my prayer. These guys don't pray that way. They say, Lord, you consider their threats. You consider their threats. We're serving you. These threats really aren't against us. They're against you. I like the passage in, uh, in 2 Kings 19 where Hezekiah is being threatened by Sennacherib. I don't have time to tell the story, but there's a great king that's coming against Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is just overwhelmed. He, he realizes this army is just mowing down nation after nation after nation, and now they're next in line. And so Sennacherib sends him this threatening letter and just says, you know, we've defeated the kings of this nation and the kings of that nation. Their gods weren't strong enough and your gods won't be strong enough either. And so Hezekiah does something that I find amazing is that he brings this letter into the temple of God and he spreads it out on the floor and he falls down on his face and he says, God, you have a problem. They're insulting you. Are you going to let them say this about you? Are you going to let them do this and get away with it? And in essence, that's what the disciples are doing. They don't call fire down from heaven. They don't say that, you know, let them, let them be killed. Let them die of heart attacks as they're worshiping. No, they said, consider their threats. That's all they say. Lord, we leave it up to you. God, you have a problem. I love praying that prayer. I use it all the time. I don't use it when I've created the problem because that's not God's problem, that's my problem. But when I'm serving the Lord and, God, and something happens and there's some something that, you know, some antagonism from the enemy, some effort by, by, uh, by the work of Satan to undermine the ministry or whatever. I come before God. The, the, the threat might be toward me directly. Somebody might be upset with me personally, but it's not really me. I bring it before God and I've actually spread it out on the floor. I, I've done this. I've gotten letters every once in a while. I get a letter. How can you say that about, you know, Hindus? How can you say that about this or that situation? Nothing's wrong with smoking marijuana. It's, you know, it's a God-given plant. That's what it's for. It's for our comfort. God gave, gave us those plants. Every green thing the Bible said, you know. And I'll get a little letter and I'll just I'll lay it out on the floor and get down on my knees and I'll just say, God, you have a problem. Show me what to do. How to, how to be a blessing through the situation. And so that's what the disciples do. By the way, I don't think I even need to say anything, but we all face things like that. This is a, a godly response. Don't retaliate. Don't strike back. Don't answer curse for curse. But instead, get on your face before the great despotas and lay it out. And let him know he's got a problem. He's got to correct something that he has to, to deal with. That's the first thing that I find remarkable. The second thing that I find remarkable in terms of prayer requests is the second part of verse 29. They ask for God, God's enablement that they might speak the word of God boldly. And it says, with greater boldness. I love that. I'm thinking to myself, John and Peter, don't you realize that's what got you in trouble in the first place is speaking boldly? Why don't you, why don't you scale back a little bit? Why don't you just ease up? Why don't you just stand down for a little while until the heat lets up? But they didn't do that. Are these guys out of their mind? No, they're not. But they've recognized the great despotas the great and sovereign Lord. They recognize his sovereignty and his power and the fulfillment of scripture and their calling. They recognize the example and modeling of Jesus and they have been filled with the power and presence and indwelling relationship of the Holy Spirit. And they ask as a result for greater boldness. They, I think they were pretty bold in chapter three. I'm thinking, how much bolder do you wanna be? But they pray for even greater boldness to preach the gospel. Why did they pray for boldness? Well, you only pray for things that you're lacking, right? So at some level, they prayed this because they, they must have felt some fear. 
they must have felt some sense of timidity and they felt it creeping up in their hearts and they recognized that as not being from God and so they aggressively pray for greater boldness. They didn't just say, bring us back to where we were before we got arrested in terms of boldness. They said, we want greater boldness to overcome this timidity that's creeping into our hearts. That's a great prayer. Have you ever felt timid? I felt timid. Every time I go out and go witnessing and I go share, there's a part of me that this timidity creeps up and then I start witnessing and then boom, get out of my way, you know, because it's like I get all fired up and I start sharing with everybody. But if you've ever gone out intentionally to go witnessing, that first person that you talk to and actually going out is the part where you feel timid. And, and you have to pray and say, God, give me great boldness to preach the word. I pray that we would be praying that for our friends and neighbors, co-workers, at our place of employment, wherever we are, that God would give us that kind of courage uh, to be bold in preaching the word of God. Now, I find that it's sometimes helpful to not only think about what they prayed, but what they didn't pray. Because see, again, my prayer might have been different, probably would have been different. I would have been praying, oh God, protect us from persecution. Oh God, you know, we need to find a new place to minister because this is just too hot here in Jerusalem right now. So would you show us a new place to go? I would have been maybe praying for more comfort and more ease. I would have been praying for God's blessing on the church and on the new ministry. And I would have just said, Lord, we'll leave all that to you. Obviously, we've worn out our welcome there. We're gonna find more comfortable, more uh, agreeable circumstances under which we can preach the gospel. But they didn't pray that. Do you realize how much, it's a bit embarrassing, do you realize how much of our prayer life is geared toward God, take care of me, God, bless me, God, make me well, God, provide for me, God, do this for me, God, do that for me. And I wanna ask you, it's a rhetorical question, it's one I ask myself, when was the last time that you prayed for great boldness to preach the gospel? When was the last time you prayed for courage and lion-like heart to advance the kingdom of God. Well, if you're like me, probably you're praying more for God's care and God's provision and this and that and all these things that we want. But the early church was on a mission and we're called to that very same mission. Nothing's changed. The call and the, the great commission is exactly the same as it was 2,000 years ago. The mission has not changed. And so God is calling us and I know I'm, I got inspired as I read this. I thought, God, give me a heart like this. I like what Phillips Brooks said. He said, don't pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers, but pray for powers equal to your tasks. That's the kind of prayer I want to pray. And I want to encourage you to be men and women like that, that are praying not just for yourselves, but you're praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And the third thing that they ask for is they ask for God to do more of what got them in trouble in the first place, healings. They'd heal this man that had been born lame, crippled, and they asked God, do it again. The very things that got them in trouble, God, do it again. These guys are either out of their minds or they are being led by God. I think we know what the answer is. They're being led by God. And they wanted God to perform miracles to affirm and, and attest to the veracity and validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you think God felt about a prayer like that? It's just a few verses, but how do you think God felt? What would his assessment be? Well, he tells us. The Bible tells us in verse 31 that the place where they were meeting was shaken. Now, for us, we're thinking, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> is an earthquake a good thing or a bad thing? Well, for the, for the disciples, it was a good thing because they knew the history of Israel. Because in Exodus chapter 19 and in Isaiah chapter 6, when God's presence and God's Shekinah glory in the form of the cloud entered to the, to, into the temple, his presence, the theophany of Christ in the Old Testament, when he entered the temple of God, every single time we have the same thing occurring. It says that the doorposts shook when God entered the temple. And so these disciples, when they feel this shaking presence of God, they realize, whoa, God is pleasured. God is pleased. Why would God be pleased? Well, they're, they're not praying for self-preservation. They're not, they're not praying for comfort. They're not praying for protection. They're not praying for blessing. 
They are praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God and they're making themselves available at whatever the cost to be a part of the plan. And so God blesses them with this indication and this sign of his pleasure. But there's more that he did because it tells us in the text that all of them were filled again with the Holy Spirit. Now the three activities that I wanna just mention briefly that are progressive or successive in the life of a believer. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a person before they come to Christ prior to conversion is they, he convicts us of sin. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8. He convicts the world of sin. If we hadn't had that conviction, we would have never come to Christ. So the Holy Spirit, not indwelling us because we're not a believer yet, but outside of us is influencing us and drawing us to a place where we're convicted of sin. That's the primary and first responsibility of the Holy Spirit for an unbeliever. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does, this progressive activity in the life of a believer, is found in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. He indwells us upon conversion. So the moment a man or woman comes to Christ, they are filled with the presence of Christ. Romans 8 tells us that you can't have the spirit of Christ or have Christ without his spirit. They are one and the same. You cannot receive one without the other. And so when you believe in Christ, you are sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing what's to come. So that's not an experience you need to wait for in the future after you come to Christ. No, you receive the Holy Spirit upon conversion. But then the next thing that the Holy Spirit does is the Bible says in Ephesians that he fills us with these fillings that are, are repeated. They, they happen over and over. We're gonna see that in the book of Acts. The disciples don't get filled once, they get filled dozens of times that are recorded for us and probably hundreds and thousands of times in their lifetime as they ministered the word of God. The interesting thing is, is that people spend so much time focusing in on this filling aspect, which is so important, not realizing the purpose for the filling. The purpose for the filling, and we find this again and again, it says the disciples filled with the Holy Spirit preached the word. They did this, they performed this miracle, they, they acted in the name of God. But a lot of Christians today want to be filled with the Spirit just so that they can feel warm and fuzzy. You know, they want to have some sort of an experience with God to, to, to affirm in their minds God's love for them. But that's a misuse of the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to share something with you as a, as a word of exhortation. I think many people have not been filled with the Spirit in a long time, and I'm not talking about the indwelling of the Spirit. I'm talking about that powerful presence of God in their life to do amazing things because they're not interested in doing God's will. If you're not interested in preaching the gospel, if you're not interested in being bold for Christ, if you're not interested in advancing his purposes, then you're probably not gonna experience the filling of the Holy Spirit very often in your life. And that's a, that's a tragic, tragic thing because the filling of the Holy Spirit is designed by God to be a normal, normative experience for the life of a believer. It doesn't mean that you, your chest explodes every time he comes upon you, but there's this sense of his presence. And I've spent so many, so many hours and, and uh, months teaching over the years on the Holy Spirit and the, the intimacy and the koinonia that he wants to have with us and how he wants to guide us and how he wants to speak through us and how he wants us to keep in step with him so that we can participate in his great work. When a man or woman walks like that, they are regularly filled with the Holy Spirit. And my heart grieves for Christians that you talk to them and they can't remember the last time it ever happened. And they're, they're reaching back 10 and 20 years to some experience at a Bible study or a worship time for the last time they can remember when they were really filled, they could sense the power of God and the presence of God to be able to do his work. And the only thing standing in the way of any believer and this experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit is obedience to God's eternal purposes. That it's not about self-preservation. It's not about our blessing. It's not about our comfort, but it's about the kingdom of God. And what I can share with you is that when you experience that, you want it more and more and more and you wanna live in it and you wanna walk in it and you want to breathe it. And that's God's design for us. So if it's been a while, the thing I would encourage you to do is to get on your face before God this afternoon 
and repent of anything that, that even is touching the idea of self-preservation in your life and confess coldness or lukewarmness and say, God, make me bold. Make me bold and fill me again for your purposes. And so these disciples are, are filled and they spoke the word of God boldly. God gave them that power. He answered their prayer. But another thing that happened that they weren't quite expecting in verse 32 that's not orchestrated, that's not, that's not commanded by Peter or John to the church, it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. And it really just speaks of unity within the church. By the way, this is what Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. He said that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, that God would give the people, his people, one heart and one mind. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17. God, make them one as we are one. It's what Paul exhorted the church to in Ephesians 4.3 when he said, make every effort to maintain the unity of the body in the bond of peace. It really does take some effort, doesn't it, to maintain unity? By the way, unity is not a bunch of Christians from different churches, uh, from the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witness and from the Unitarian church and from all these different groups that, that don't even, aren't even on the same page as the Bible and get together, hold hands, sway, and sing some song that doesn't even have Jesus' name in it. That's not unity. Unity is based upon the authority of Scripture. It's based on the Word of God. That's where our unity comes from. We are made one when we're in tune together with the Word of God. That's what brings oneness. Not when I try to tune my life to yours or you try to tune yours to mine, but when we're tuned to the work of God, then we all find ourselves in unity before God. I like what Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And this is a word that I want to encourage you to receive for yourself as well as a word from God because it's meant for us as well. He says, stand firm then in one spirit, contending. I love that word. In other words, there's a wrestling effort. It takes work. It's not easy to maintain unity. Have any of you ever had problem maintaining unity with somebody? that you've crossed wires some way and, and you can't seem to get it right. And there's a point, isn't there, where you just think to yourself, this just isn't worth it. Have you ever felt that way? I'm just going to let that friendship go. Well, when you let that relationship go, you're stepping outside of the will of God when it comes to the church. I'm not saying that you have to submit yourself to abuse or to slander or anything of that nature. But I'm saying never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, ever give up on a Christian, never. As long as they're breathing, as long as blood is coursing through their veins, we have a command to contend earnestly for uh, the unity in the spirit. And so he says, contend as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. You know, this is all God stuff. Can, can you see that? That this is completely God stuff when people pray like this and when people behave this way. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the other thing that is unnatural is that no one claimed anything as his own. They had homes, they had fields, they had flocks, they had resources, they had wealth. But the Bible says that no one claimed those as their own. Everything comes from above, by the way. James tells us that every good and perfect gift your mind, your education, your upbringing, the fact that you were born in the United States, the fact that you are wealthier than 99% of the population of the world, no matter, I don't care if, you're, if you don't have more than you know, 50 bucks in the bank, you are richer than the majority of the world. God has blessed us with those things. It's not that you're so smart. It's not, most of what, where you are, you had absolutely no control over. You may have worked hard with the things that God has given you, and that's an honorable thing. But the fact is, is that where you are in life is the result of God's blessing. And so they recognized that nothing really was theirs in the first place, and so they shared everything they had. Now, it's interesting because uh, I had a professor in, in seminary. I don't know how he ended up in an in a evangelical school, but this guy was a, was a socialist, and, uh, and he taught uh, on, on ethics and on, um, 
on uh, justice, human justice or divine justice. I forget what the course was called. And I had to take this course and I was just like every class I was clashing with this guy because he really believed that this text in particular taught socialism and communism. But let me tell you what the difference is. Communism says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. And Koinonia says that what is mine is yours, I'll share it. It's a completely different worldview. Communism takes and demands and Koinonia out of love gives generously. And by the way, here again, we see this early church naturally because of the work of the Spirit in their life and their obedience to God functioning in the two greatest commands in the Bible. Loving God, they loved God more than anybody else. They weren't about to bow the knee to man. They loved the Lord, they obeyed him. And secondly, they loved others, so much so that they didn't even consider what they had as being their own and they were willing to share it. Well, the the apostles as a result In verse 33, we're told, continue to testify of Jesus' resurrection, by the way, again, which is what got them in trouble in the first place with the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection. But they continue to do the very thing that got them in trouble. And they did it with much power, the Bible says, and much grace. Verse 34 and 35 tells us that there were no needy people among them. Uh, They sold what they had and they brought it to the apostles' feet and distributed the funds to those that were in need. Now, this is a part of the calling of the church is to care for each other. It, it really is a time of stress. It's a time of duress. It's a time of persecution. So we need to understand that background before we fully understand this text. It's very much like what happened over in Mississippi is that when you get over there, everyone's sharing. People don't normally invite three, two or three strange unknown families into their home and say, you can stay here as long as you need to. That's not normal. But those weren't normal circumstances. As a result, they willingly invited people in. People that didn't even know each other before uh, this hurricane were walking down the street and helping each other, move refrigerators, do whatever needed to have happen. They were praying together, encouraging each other. That's not normal. Those aren't normal circumstances. These weren't normal circumstances either. There was a persecution that was just beginning to break out against the church from the spiritual religious leaders. And as a result, people lost jobs, they lost their homes, they lost their income, they lost their employees, they lost their businesses for simply loving God and responding to his Messiah. And so the church stepped up under those adverse circumstances and began to meet each other's needs. But you know, anytime that you have generosity, you have people that take advantage. We see that all the time. By the way, it's happening in Mississippi. It's happening in Louisiana. You know, I heard stories about people that, were, uh, uh, that had a little bit of roof damage. And so they went and ripped off more shingles off of their roof so they could get the whole roof replaced instead of just the few that were there. They wanted a new roof. People that were uh, pulling furniture down from second floors and breaking it up on the front lawns uh, so that the furniture that wasn't damaged by the storm so that they could uh, have a higher claim from their insurance adjuster. So anytime you have generosity or money involved at all, you have greed and you have people that take advantage. And that's why Paul, in uh, his teaching in, uh, to Thessalonians and, and Timothy, has to lay out some strict rules on how the church should support people and who the church should support. And so I want to just go over these really briefly because uh, I think they're important for the church to know what kind of person we should be helping. Number one is if the person is able-bodied and won't work, the church shouldn't support them. And we have people like that on this island that are able-bodied, but they don't want to work or they go from job to job. They keep getting fired over and over and over because they're just impossible to work with. And then they want the church to to bail them out and to support them. The Bible says don't support a person like that. Secondly, the Bible says that if a person is in need, the first course of action is for them to go to their family. The family of that person is responsible to support them. It's interesting that over the years, in having people come and ask for help, one of the first things I'll ask after we talk about the need for a little bit is, where's your family? Will your family help you? Oh, no, they won't help me. Why won't they help you? Well, they've, uh, well, I borrowed a lot of money from them and I never pay them back. You know, I said, would you mind if I called your parents? Uh, well, uh, I'd rather you not. Why? 
Well, because they're really angry with me because I've just been really irresponsible with my finances over the years. And I'm thinking, okay, so you want the church to be, to step in where your parents have cut you off because you're irresponsible and you're untrustworthy and you don't pay your debt back. So the Bible says don't support a person like that either. Their family needs to support them first. The third indication that Paul gives of how a person is to be supported is that those who are supported by the church should be investing in the church ministry in some fashion. And we find that in Timothy where he's talking about supporting widows who are widows indeed. He said this person needs to be praying and washing the feet of the saints and just really, really serving, involved at church, participating. The fourth thing is that the church needs to examine the moral conduct of a person. So if they're living a life that's ungodly, the Bible says don't support that person. And the last thing is in 1 Timothy 6, 8 is that the church should support people only for their basic necessities. And I kid you not, people have come and asked me for vacation money, that they need to go on vacation with their family because there's this big reunion and they need to go on it because they, they've got to go on the vacation. I'm saying, well, we can't do that. I've had people who I know went on vacation and then came to me you know, a week after they got back and said, we don't have money for food. And I said, well, where did you get the money for your vacation? Well, we just figured that we'd come to the church afterwards and get help. And I said, well, you're coming to the wrong people because we're not going to help you in that situation. And so the Bible doesn't tell us that, that we're to be generous without thinking, but the Bible tells us that there's some very clear guidelines because there are people that take advantage. But people who are genuinely in need, man, our church is on it. We're helping people. We've, the church has housed people. We We've given people money. We've paid their rent. We've paid their electric. We've paid their water. We have, um, we've bailed people out of all kinds of terrible situations. And that's our privilege and honor as a church. But we also stay with the guidelines that the scriptures lay out for appropriate giving. The last thing that I'll just touch on briefly is a, is a gentleman that we're going to be introduced to today named Joseph. But we don't know him by Joseph. We know him as Barnabas. Why do we know him as Barnabas? We know him as Barnabas because he was so prolific in the use of his gift that they nicknamed him by his gift. Bar is the son of, and Nabas is a prophet. He's the son of a prophet, not in reality, not in blood, but by virtue of his prolific use of his gift of encouragement and exhortation, which is one of the gifts of prophecy. And so Barnabas is so prolific in his use of encouragement and blessing of people that they call him Barnabas. I love that. We, we've had people in our church, some of you are, are called by names like that, where we see the giftings in you and we say, man, you are, you are a servant. That's what we're going to call you. Does anybody remember Bob Soden? What did we call Bob Soden? Greeter Bob. That's what we called him. He was so prolific in his use of his gifting that we nicknamed him Greeter Bob. And here we've got Joseph, who's no longer from this point called Joseph, We're introduced to him as Joseph by his real name, but he is now forever going to be named Barnabas because of his gifting. I think to myself, wouldn't it be great if we were all so prolific in the use of our gifts that we were actually nicknamed by that gifting because we used it so often and so frequently for the building up of the body of Christ. In fact, that's actually what, um, what Peter says that we should do. He says, each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. And so that's the calling that you have. And so I want to ask you just a a question you can think of the answer for yourself. But what is the gifting that you are using prolifically in the body of Christ? I don't know. I'm looking around and I know so many of you and I know what your giftings are. But God has called us to stir up those gifts and use them so prolifically that we become known for that gift. And people know, hey, this is a person we can count on for this situation because they're so gifted in this area. That's God's call on your life. If you don't know what your gifts are, I'd encourage you to find out. We can help you with that. Come and see me. You know, there's all kinds of of tests you can take, but uh, frankly, if if I know you at all, I can probably tell you what your gifts are just by virtue of your of, uh, of your service to the kingdom of God and in the church. But if you're not using your gifts and you've been kind of passive and maybe a bit of lukewarm or maybe cold, is that that's one of the things that God wants to stir up in your life as well. That's part of being bold. That's part of being courageous. Not being timid about using your gifts, but stepping forward and using those gifts for the glory of God. And so we find that Barnabas is an example of this kind of giving. By the way, he's also a contrast to what we're going to study next, next week in the, in, the, in the people of Ananias and Sapphira who gave 
just to simply look good. But Barnabas sold his field and brought the proceeds to the, to the apostles. And boy, this guy used his gifts, his resources, but also his gifts for ministry. So what are some of the lessons that we can carry away from, from this uh, study this morning? Well, I think number one is that God is sovereign. Neither man nor Satan nor any of our circumstances can thwart his eternal purposes. Number two is that God will empower anyone who asks for the power and the filling of the Spirit as long as you're willing to be about his business. Thirdly, God is generous and has entrusted us with resources not to expend on ourselves alone, but to make available for the church and for unbelievers. Fourthly, God is calling us to use all that we've got, including our spiritual gifts, to be prolific in the building up of the body of Christ. And the thing I want to share with you just in closing is that that same question again, the choice is in front of us, cold or hot, cold or bold, which will it be? I wish it was a one-time decision, but right now you have to make it again. What kind of a life will you lead? And if you want to be bold, the worst thing you can do is to simply make some sort of a commitment and decide that you're going to try harder because that's not nearly enough. It's not nearly sufficient. What we need to do is we need to pray again and say, Lord, shake this place. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the courage, even greater courage than we've ever had in these days that we live in to preach the gospel wherever we are. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the wisdom that we gain from studying and from conforming ourselves to your purposes in these days that we live in. And God, I pray for these men and women that are here this morning, that you would make us bold as lions, that you would make us courageous, that God, we wouldn't stand down, that we wouldn't capitulate, that we wouldn't cave in, that we wouldn't compromise. And God, by your grace, may we not be lukewarm or cold. God, we're asking to, that you would fill us with boldness again. God, give us courage. Give us greater boldness than we've ever had before. And may our mouth and our hearts and our hands and our feet and our minds and our lives be about your business, that you might find vessels fit for filling again with your power that we might accomplish your great work in these final days. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. We're not what we want to be, and we know we'll never be what you want us to be in our own strength. And so we come recognizing you as the great despotas, the great sovereign one, the all-powerful creator of the universe. Nothing is too difficult for you. Fill us again, Lord, and make us the men and women that you've planned for us to be, that you intend for us to be, and that you've interceded for us to be, and that you died for us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.